decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the air in studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It's good to have you with us. It is Friday, September 16th, 2022. And this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated primarily to the public reading of scriptures and secondarily to my thoughts on various topics of today. And it is Friday. So today is Federalist Friday as we're continuing to look through the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, the governing documents of the United States. Not that the Federalist Papers are the governing documents, but Federalist Papers are the Constitution's authors arguing in favor of the ratification of the Constitution. So they're explaining the various uh, uh, doc- uh, reasons for the the, why the Constitution says what it says and is what it is. And yes, I am doing Federalist Friday with the British Union Jack on the wall behind me um, because we are still mourning the passing of Elizabeth II and the flag will be up until uh, after the funeral on Monday. So that's just the way that is um, as I'm exercising my inner royalist this week. Um, So our scripture reading today as we continue to read through the entire Bible in the Legacy Standard Bible Translation. Our scriptures today are Isaiah 60 and 63 and 2 Corinthians 1. And Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.org. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are sure to find something that's worth listening to. Um, If you don't find anything worth listening to, send me a letter and I'll give you double your money back. So, all right. Let us begin, as is our habit, with the prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer of 1552. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and dense gloom the peoples. But Yahweh will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried on the nurse's hip. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will tremble and be large with joy. Because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praise of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebuoth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar. And I shall adorn my glorious house with beautiful glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will hope in me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first. To bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of Yahweh your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has adorned you with, bound of, with beautiful glory. Foreigners will build up your walls, and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be opened continually. They will not be closed day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will surely be laid waste. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together, to adorn the place of my sanctuary with beautiful glory, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious." The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who spurned you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Instead of being forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings, then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver, and instead of wood, bronze, and instead of stones, iron, and I will make peace your overseers and righteousness your taskmasters. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may show forth my beautiful glory. The smallest one will become a clan, and the minuscule one a mighty nation. I, Yahweh, will hasten it in its time. 61. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, 
the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Then they will rebuild the ancient waste places. They will raise up the former desolations. They will make new the ruined cities, the desolations from generation to generation. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of Yahweh. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their glories you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of dishonor, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting gladness will be theirs. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and in truth I will give them their recompense and cut an everlasting covenant with them. Then their seed will be known among the nations and their offspring in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the seed whom Yahweh has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its branches, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to branch out, so Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to branch out before all the nations. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness, and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness, and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. You will also be a crown of glory in the hand of Yahweh, and a turban of royalty in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For Yahweh takes pleasure in her, in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind Yahweh, take no rest for yourselves. And give him no rest until he establishes and sets Jerusalem as a praise in the earth. Yahweh has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who collect it will eat it and praise Yahweh, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, clear the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise up a standard over the peoples. Behold, Yahweh has announced to the end of the earth, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Who is this who comes from Edom, with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his clothing, marching in the greatness of his power, 
It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your clothing red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. I stained all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I brought down their lifeblood to the earth. I shall bring remembrance. I shall bring to remembrance the loving kindness of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all the ways that Yahweh has dealt bountifully with us, and the abundant goodness toward the house of Israel which he has dealt bountifully to them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. And he said, Surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their distress, he was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them, and he lifted them and carried them all the ancient of days. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the ancient days of Moses, whereas he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who split the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness? They did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The tumults within you and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize you, O Yahweh, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. Why, O Yahweh, do you cause us to stray from your ways and stiffen our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your slaves, the tribe of your inheritance. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. Now, Second Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the suffering of Christ abound to us, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. But whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or whether we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is working in your perseverance in the same suffering which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing 
that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who rescued us from so great a peril of death, and will rescue us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet rescue us. You also joining in our helping you also joining in helping us through your prayers on our behalf, so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gifts bestowed on us through the prayers of many. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason for boasting, as you also are ours, in the day of our Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I intended at first to come to you, so that you might receive grace twice, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia, to come to you, and by you to be helped on our journey to Judea. Therefore, I was vacillating when I intended to, therefore was I vacillating when I intended to do this or what I purposed do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be yes yes and no no at the same time but as God is faithful our word to you is not yes and no for the God of our for the son of God Jesus Christ who was preached among you by us by me and Silvanus and Timothy was not yes and no but has become yes in him for as many are the prom- as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who established us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts. But I call God as witness to my soul, that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day. Defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
All right. It is Friday, which means it's Federalist Friday. And we're continuing to read through the Federalist Papers as we learn about the founding and governance of our nation. Today we are looking at Federalist Number 6. This was written by Alexander Hamilton. And the title is Concerning Dangers from Dissensions Between the States. For the Independent Journal, to the people of the State of New York. The three last numbers of this paper have been dedicated to an enumeration of the dangers to which we should be exposed in a state of disunion from the arms and arts of foreign nations. I shall now proceed to delineate dangers of a different kind and perhaps still more alarming kind, those which will in all probability flow from dissensions between the states themselves and from domestic factions and convulsions. These have been already in some instances slightly anticipated, but they deserve a more particular and more full investigation. A man must be far gone in utopian speculations who can seriously doubt that if these states should either be wholly disunified or only united in partial confederacies, the subdivisions into which they might be thrown would have frequent and violent contests with each other. To presume a want of motives for such contests is an agreement, is an argument against their existence, would be to forget that men are ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious. To look for a continuation of harmony between a number of independent, unconnected sovereignties in the same neighborhood would be to disregard the uniform course of human events and to set at defiance the accumulated experience of ages. The causes of hostility among nations are innumerable. There are some which have a general and more almost constant operation upon the collective bodies of society. Of this description are the love of power or the desire of preeminence and dominion, the jealousy of power or the desire of equality and safety. There are others which have more circumscribed through an equally operative influence within their spheres. Such are the rivalships and competitions of commerce between commercial nations. And there are others, not less numerous than either of the former, which take their origin entirely in private passions, in the attachments, enmities, interests, hopes, and fears of leading individuals in the communities of which they are members. Men of this class, whether the favorites of a king or of a people, have, in too many instances, abused the confidence they possessed, and assumed, and assuming the pretext of some public motive, have not scrupled to sacrifice the national tranquility to personal advantage or personal gratification. The celebrated Pericles, in compliance with the resentment of a prostitute, at the expense of much of the blood and treasure of his countrymen, attacked, vanquished, and destroyed the city of the Samnians. The same man, strangulated by private pique against the Megarissians, another nation of Greece, or to avoid a persecution with which he was threatened as an accomplice of a supposed theft of the statuary of Phidias, or to get rid of the accusations prepared to be brought against him for dissipating the funds of the state in the purchase of popularity, or from a combination of all these causes, was the primitive author of that famous and fatal war distinguished in the Grecian animals by the name of the Peloponnesian War, which, after various vicissitudes, intermissions, and renewals, 
terminated in the ruin of the Athenian commonwealth. The ambitious cardinal, who was primary minister to Henry, the, Henry VIII, permitted his vanity to aspire to the triple crown, entertaining hopes of succeeding to the acquisition of that splendid prize by the influence of the Emperor Charles V. To secure the favor and interest of this enterprise, enterprising and powerful monarch, he participated he precipitated England into a war with France, contrary to the plainest dictates of policy, and at the hazard of the safety and independence of, as well of the kingdom over which he presided by his councils, as of Europe in general. For if there was ever a sovereign who bid fair to realize the project of universal monarchy, it was the Emperor Charles V, of whose intrigues Wolsey was at once the instrument and the dupe. The influence which the bigotry of one female, the petulance of another, and the cabals of a third had in the contemporary policy ferment and pacifications of a considerable part of Europe are topics that have been too often discanted upon not to be generally known. To multiple examples of the agency of personal considerations in the production of great national events, either foreign or domestic according to their direction, would be an unnecessary waste of time. Those who have but a superficial acquaintance with the sources from which they are to be drawn will themselves recollect a variety of instances, and those who have a tolerable knowledge of the human nature will not stand in need of such lights to form their opinion either of the reality or extent of that agency. Perhaps, however, a reference tending to illustrate the general principle may be may with propriety be made to a case which has lately happened among ourselves. If Shays had not been a desperate debtor, it is much to be doubted whether Massachusetts would have been plunged into a civil war. But notwithstanding the concurring testimony of experience, in this particular there is still to be found visionary or designing men who stand ready to advocate the paradox of perpetual peace between the states though dismembered and alienated from each other. The genus of republics, they say, is specific. The spirit of commerce has a tendency to soften the manners of men and to extinguish those inflammable humors which have so often kindled into wars. Commercial republics, like ours, will never be disposed to waste themselves in ruinous contentions with each other. They will be governed by mutual interest and will cultivate a spirit of mutual amity and concord. It is not, we may ask these projectors in politics, is it not, we may ask these projectors in politics, the true interest of all nations to cultivate the same benevolent and philosophical, philosophic spirit? If this be their true interest, have they in fact pursued it? Has it not, on the contrary, invariably been found that monetary passions and immediate interests have a more active and imperious control over human conduct than general and remote considerations of policy, unity, or justice. Have republics, in practice, been less addicted to war than monarchies? Are not the former administered by men as well as the latter? Are there not aversions, predilections, rivalships, and desires of unjust accusations that affect nations as well as kings? Are not popular assemblies frequently subject to the impulses of rage, resentment, jealousy, avarice, and of other irregular and violent propensities? Is it not well known that their 
determinations are often governed by a few individuals in whom they place confidence and are, of course, liable to be tinctured by the passions and views of those individuals. Has commerce hitherto done anything more than change the objects of war? Is not the love of wealth as domineering and enterprising a passion as that of power or glory? Have there not been as many wars founded upon commercial motives, since that has become the prevailing system of nations, as were before occasioned by the cupidity of territory or dominion? Has not the spirit of commerce, in many instances, administered new incentives to the appetite, both for the one and for the other? Let experience, the least fallible guide of human opinions, be appealed to for an answer to these inquiries. Sparta, Athens, Rome, and Carthage were all republics, two of them, Athens and Carthage, of the commercial kind. Yet were they as often engaged in wars, offensive and defensive, as the neighboring monarchies of the same times. Sparta was little better than a well-regulated camp, and Rome was never sated of carnage and conquest. Carthage, though a commercial republic, was the aggressor in the very war that ended her in her destruction. Hannibal had carried her arms into the heart of Italy and to the gates of Rome before Scipio in turn gave him an overthrow in the territories of Carthage and made a conquest of the commonwealth. Venice, in later times, figured more than once in wars of ambition, till, becoming an object to the other Italian states, Pope Julius II found means to accomplish that formidable league. Nine which gave a deadly blow to the power and pride of this haughty republic. The provinces of Holland, till they were overwhelmed in debts and taxes, took a leading and conspicuous part in the wars of Europe. Had they, they had furious contests with England for the dominion of, of the sea and were among the most persevering and most implacable of the opponents of Louis Fourteenth. In the government of Britain, the representatives of the people compose one branch of the national legislature. Commerce has been for ages the predominant pursuit of that country. Few nations, nevertheless, have been more frequently engaged in war, and the wars in which that kingdom has been engaged have, in numerous instances, proceeded from the people. There have been, if I may so express it, almost as many popular as royal wars. The cries of the nation and the importunities of their representatives have, upon various occasions, dragged their monarchs into war, or continued them in it, contrary to their inclinations, and sometimes contrary to the real interest of the state. In that memorable struggle for superiority between the rival houses of Austria and Bourbon, which so long kept Europe in a flame, it is well known that the antipathies of the English against the French, seconding the ambition or rather avarice of their favorite leader, protracted the war beyond the limits marked out by sound policy and for a considerable time in opposition to the views of the court. The wars of these two last-mentioned nations have, in a great measure, grown out of commercial considerations, the desire of supplanting and fear of being supplanted, either in particular branches of traffic or in the general advantages of trade and navigation. From this summary of what has taken place in the other countries, whose situations have borne the nearest resemblance to our own, what reason can we have to confide in those rivalries 
which would seduce us into an expectation of peace and cordiality between the members of the present Confederacy in a state of separation. Have we not already seen enough of the fallacy and extravagance of those idle theories which have amused us with promises of an exemption from the imperfections, weaknesses, and evils incident to society in every shape? Is it not time to awaken from the deceitful dream of a golden age and to adopt as a practical maxim for the direction of our political conduct that we, as well as the other inhabitants of the globe, are yet remote from the happy empire of perfect, perfect wisdom and perfect virtue? Let the point of extreme depression to which our nation, national dignity and credit have sunk, let the inconvenience, inconveniences felt everywhere from a lax and ill administration of government let the revolt on the, of a part of the state of North Carolina, the late menacing disturbances in Pennsylvania, and the actual insurrections and rebellions in Massachusetts declare. So far as the general sense of mankind, from corresponding with the tenets of those who endeavor to lull asleep our apprehensions of discord and hostility between the states, in the event of disunion, that it has, from long observation of the progress of society, become a sort of axiom in politics— that vicinity or nearness of situation const constitutes nations' natural enemies. An intelligent writer expressed himself on this subject to this effect. Neighboring nations, he says, are naturally enemies of each other unless their common weakness forces them to league, forces them to league in a Confederate republic, and their constitution prevents the differences that neighboring neighborhood occasions. Extinguishing that secret jealousy which disposes all states to aggrandize themselves at the expense of their neighbors. This passage, at the same time, points out the evil and suggests the remedy. Publius. All right, well, that's Squirrel Chatter for Friday. Have a great weekend. Make sure you get yourself to church on Sunday, and I hope to see you again here on Monday. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Have a great weekend. Go to church. I'll see you Monday. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.